My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Helena Kirshner. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, Helena. 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 I, I, I spelled it out here, but I can't understand my own spelling. So yeah, <laughs> excuse me. My <laughs> slight moment of, of retardation uh, at the beginning of the podcast. She is the um, essentially the face of Detransition, uh, an advisor for Genspect and uh, the owner, operator and CEO of her own Substack. Uh, welcome, Helena. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's lovely to have you on. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, we've postponed this a few times, but I'm happy we managed to do it. Um, you have been uh, making the rounds. Your story is out there now. Uh, it's, it is a, a gripping story uh, and you've kind of become, you know, the face of, of kind of detransitioning, especially for the uh, so-called FTM trans sphere, which is quite different from the other MTF trans sphere, I think. At least it feels to me uh, seeing seeing what's happening in both of these these areas. I mean, after all of this uh, and after your, your journey, um, I mean, what is your feeling now about the whole, uh, about trans? I mean, what is it? What what type of phenomenon is it? I mean, what I tend to do personally, my, my opinion is that we've kind of been railroaded by this concept and we're now kind of haggling over peanuts, like, you know, who gets what type of surgery, top surgery, bottom surgery, uh, hormones, when, when actually, you know, the actual, the actual philosophical underpinnings of, you know, what is this, is this even real, have not been debated, have not been discussed, are impossible to, to actually parse. So, I mean, after all that's happened to you, where are you now philosophically on, on the question of trans? So I, I definitely take kind of a, a take an entire step back approach. I think that, it's, you know, we have to, like you said, we've been so railroaded by all of these ideas and told, you know, all this kind of stuff about we need to affirm people, gender identity, all this ideological stuff. But I think we need to just kind of return back to maybe 15 years ago when we still had like some semblance of normalcy and just get in touch with that normalcy and, and like ask ourselves, is it a normal or good thing to be taking people who are obviously you know, mentally not well and like creating a fake uh, identity body caricature of them through all these like hormones and surgeries. Like, is that actually something that we think in our hearts of hearts is going to make people happy? Is that something that we want to include in our society? Is that the right ethical thing to do? So that's kind of my view of it at this point. I pretty strongly disagree with you know, all of it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that's, that's pretty much my position as well. A very, uh, profound turf, maybe light on the RF, but still, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> very much against the whole concept. Um, I mean, 
as a detransitioner, I mean, you know, it's like I said, your story is out there, but maybe it's good to kind of, you know, just summarize what, what exactly happened, uh, in, in your background, you know, how are you now the authority in this field? You know, what's, what's the, what's the journey been like? Yeah. Uh, did you want to like go through it? Yeah. Just kind of (laughs) in in short, I know you've kind of gone into this on on other podcasts, but just in case people are not aware what what happened. Yeah. Just a a kind of a a short intro of the, I know it's probably not going to be easy to to compress it, but yeah, just essentially what, what's been going on and how you've reached the point where you're at now. Sure. So I'm actually about four years post detransition. So it's not a huge it, it doesn't really play much of a part in my daily life. I'm fortunate to not have had like major health consequences because of it, most likely because I was only on testosterone for a year and a half, and that's just not a very long time. Um, and I never got any surgeries or anything like that. So uh, for myself, emotionally, I've pretty much you know processed processed it, moved on, all that good stuff. But um, I still just you know I. I look at all the other people who aren't as lucky as me, who maybe did get surgeries, who maybe, you know, were put on these hormones at a younger age and it affected them more profoundly and they're struggling with the health consequences of these, you know, quote unquote treatments. Um, and so that's why I'm still kind of here talking about it. And I'm also here talking about it because I think that what I went through and how I came to believe that I was transgender is something that is vaguely understood or maybe suspected by certain parts of the culture. Um, But it's not something that's really widely understood. And for me, it was not so much, you know, like growing up feeling like I was in the wrong body or anything like that. It was very much finding these ideas online and kind of being either indoctrinated into or self-indoctrinating myself into this uh, very much like a political ideology about what gender is, what sex is, and also, you know, about race and religion and men and women and all this kind of stuff. It's really like a whole package. And that is what led to me, you know, first deciding, oh, I'm going to change my pronouns and then getting a bunch of positive affirmation for that. And this was when I was 14, 15 years old. Um, and then cutting my hair, getting a bunch of positive affirmation for that. And then just never really having access to any dissenting views. And, you know, the adults at my school, like my school counselor and my uh, my school therapist, psychologist, both, you know, affirming me saying like, yes, you're a boy, actually, you know, bringing my mom in and telling her like, your son is going to, you know, be at higher risk of suicide if he can't transition, um, like really just not pushing back on that at all. And that is what led me to eventually actually take that step into taking testosterone, which was incredibly easy. You just go to Planned Parenthood and give them a couple hundred bucks and they give you your testosterone. So I think that a lot of people just aren't aware that that's happening. People have an idea that it's like, oh, these people have always felt this way and they have to go through years of therapy and they have to see like a real doctor and they get diagnosed and it's like a super official, serious thing. Um, but it's not, it's a lot of the times it's just these like teenage kids who they go online, uh, they're terminally online and they adopt these ideological beliefs. It becomes super important to them socially because they don't have any socialization outside of these online communities. And then the, the whole 
infrastructure is there to just kind of pass you on into these medical treatments. And like I said, I'm the one who's really lucky that I never was pushed into surgeries or anything like that. I was able to like grow up and think and, you know, de you know, unpack my ideological beliefs before I was, you know, put into surgery. But I know people who it's like they had their testicles removed at 18 years old. And that's just completely terrifying. So that that's kind of why I'm here still talking about it. That's a little bit about my story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was never kind of an, an off ramp offered officially to you. It was just affirming care the whole way through. Yeah, yeah, totally. It, like, it's never even presented to you as a possibility that there might be a different answer to, you know, or a different way of interpreting your experiences, or that you might regret it later on, or you might at some point not identify as trans. It's very much just like, yes, you are trans. And the only route to take if you are trans is to have these medical procedures. And were you aware back then that there were detransitioners or was was that not clear? I mean, I guess no one told you that there were, but was that part of the communities? Was anyone talking about detransitioning? Um, not nearly as much. I remember like I had one, there was one person that I knew from Tumblr who was like in, in like a friend group that I had or, or kind of like ran in the same circles. And this person stopped identifying as trans and everybody kind of treated it as like, oh, this person is suspicious now. Like this is something really weird. This is a sign that they're like not to be trusted. And then people would just like kind of start picking apart everything they said and their motives and just like painting this person in a, in a very negative light. Like it was made clear that it's like, okay, this person is out now. Like this is not our friend anymore. Um, but I think at the time, cause I first transitioned, I first started testosterone in 2016 and I think I first started believing I was trans in like 2012, 2013. So at that time, there really wasn't this like big detransitioner community. Like even for example, in 2018, when I did detransition, the subreddit for detransitioners had like less than 100 members. Mm. And now it has over 10,000. And not all of those people are detransitioners, but I mean, it's a really active subreddit. There's people posting every day. So yeah, it's just really grown. But at the time... It wasn't in the consciousness. And the one time where something like that did happen, where somebody decided that they weren't trans, it was very much treated as like, a, this is something you don't do. Yeah. And what was kind of the explanation from there? And I mean, why would this person do this? They were just kind of like a, a class trader or, yeah, just... They're confused. They're, mm. they're suffering from internalized transphobia. They just let the societal transphobia get to them. And it's very sad. Um, and they're very disturbed. And that, that's kind of, you know, how I was treated when I did detransition. And I told my closest friends that I was, you know, I no longer identified as trans for the first few weeks until this person ended up detransitioning too. Um, this person was like, you know, psychoanalyzing me and being like, is this because you, you know, you were on the phone with your mom the other day and, you know, like it, this is a trauma response that like you you don't you no longer think you're trans because you're having a trauma response or something like that. Um so it's very much seen as like if if you think you're trans that's amazing epic change your pronouns all this kind of stuff this is all great exploration but then if you take a step back then it's like oh there's something wrong with you take your meds. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting that you know it's very much tied to these online communities, um, especially for for uh, female to male trans, um, and I think you know it, it feels to me that it's not just trans. I mean, trans kind of like the, the most visible aspect of this because it's so outlandish in a way, you know, to, you know, this, this whole kind of metaphysical change from one thing to the other. Uh, but there's a lot of new communities forming, or maybe they're not as new, they're new to me around, uh, autism around mm-hmm. like just even classical things like, you know, depression, anxiety. I mean, who, you know, who hasn't had these things? Uh, and it, it feels to me that, you know, once you go in on the depression subreddit or whatever form you want to go, uh, you pretty want pretty much want to stay depressed. You pretty much want to stay anxious, you know, because that's your community and those are your friends. So it's uh it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, trans in a way is kind of a kind of a progressive form of this. Like you actually end up as something, you know, allegedly better than you were. Uh, but most of these are essentially, yeah, they're they're um setting you up to perpetuate your problem. Yeah, exactly. And it's because it essentially externalizes all of your problems. So uh, like a lot of the people who are coming to these groups, whether it's trans or it's, you know, like the depression and self-harm stuff, it's like these are people who, for whatever reason, they feel overwhelmed by their emotional struggles in life. And a lot of the times this is young people who just kind of by definition feel overwhelmed, especially if they don't have like parental figures who are really like strong and there for them and helping and guiding them you know, to be able to overcome their challenges. It can be really overwhelming for people to think like, to take responsibility for that and to know what to do, especially if, like I said, they're young and they just literally don't have the experience or guidance to know what to do. And then you have these groups and these ideologies coming in and saying, oh, all of this is explained by this. It's explained by you're trans or you were born in the wrong body or you're fat in the case of like eating disorder communities or you know, you have a medical condition called depression. It's all explained by that. And there's nothing you can do about it. And it's a way in a way that's, you know, depressing in and of itself and defeatist. But it's also, you know, it gives a person a sense of control, because they're no longer kind of like floating around, uh, you know, aimlessly, not knowing what to do. And now they have this this paradigm of understanding themselves. Um, but in order to continue having that benefit, you have to continue buying into it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've kind of gone through the same thing with ADHD. ADHD, obviously, much more superficial thing, but like with with COVID and lockdowns and just being at home, working from home, I just got so frazzled from screen time and just having to be online all the time that I essentially developed something like ADHD. I just couldn't, you know, for the life of me, finish anything. So I went down the rabbit hole with all the, you know, self-diagnosis. You know, I went through the questionnaire like, yes. Of course I have ADHD, but it was like rapid onset ADHD, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it was really interesting. And I one like for, for a few months, I was absolutely convinced that I had ADHD. That was my whole life. That's the answer to all my problems. Like even like I went through like Reddit and obviously, you know, all these people just sharing stuff like, oh, problems people with ADHD have, like, I don't know, they don't like uncomfortable underwear. And I'm like, I don't like uncomfortable underwear. I like comfortable underwear. I'm like, yeah, I guess it's probably a bit more universal than ADHD. But yeah, you know, like just reading all that stuff. And I'm like, it's like, uh, you know, the horoscope. It's like, yes, this is me. Uh, And, you know, all the community, there's a lot of, you know, YouTubers as well specializing in this and it's all very cutesy and stuff. And 
you know, it does offer some, you know, helpful strategies to overcome it, but it's also kind of essentializing. It's like, okay, you are uh, an ADHD or you have ADHD and now you, you, you're frazzled and you can't get shit done. And this is part of your identity now. Uh, and it, it is kind of self-fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. Especially to an adolescent, it's especially powerful because their brains are literally primed to be like incorporating things into identity. My next question is, what is the um, kind of the relationship between the two spheres of trans? Uh, I guess, you know, when you were on Tumblr, your community was mostly female to male transitioners. Uh, but there's kind of a huge and very visible and actually quite um, present in the, in the activist circles of male to female. And they're not the same. So how did you interact with, with male to female transgender or what was the, the relationship there? So online, yeah, so I primarily use Tumblr and that's kind of like where I was getting all of my ideas from. And on Tumblr, it's like 98% female. And then the very, the 2% of males who are on Tumblr are mostly trans identified. Or I guess I've heard that there's men who like make Tumblr accounts, but just to use porn. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who actually participate in like the social um, scene of Tumblr, I guess. Um, so I did interact with a very small amount of quote trans women on Tumblr. And it's really interesting because these people often had like pretty, uh, like commanding personalities. And a lot of the times, like there would be like a trans woman and then almost like groupies, like female groupies who would just like, you know, really kind of regard these people very highly. Like I remember I had a group chat in which there was a bunch of us, we were like just fandom accounts or whatever. And then there was one biological male trans woman added who like didn't even share any of our interests, but had like, you know, was like a, a communist kind of poster and, uh, you know, had a lot of followers and everybody just like one person was like mutuals with him. So they wanted to add him to the group chat. And like, people were just so excited about like adding him to this group chat. And like, we're just constantly like, you know, just lavishing him with praise and just like asking him all these questions. And he would just like spurg out about communism and everyone would be like, wow, it's <laughs> so smart. Um, so that was kind of the dynamic that I witnessed personally. Um, I do have a couple of friends who are detransitioner men. Um, and one of them did use Tumblr. I'm not sure if that was the kind of dynamic with him. From what I've heard from him, it's like he was kind of like always on the outside, kind of trying to appeal to the to the women, to the girls on there by like, you know, changing his pronouns and, and being trans and stuff, wanting to be accepted. So that's kind of the vibe that I got from him. Um, and then I, the other detrans men I know mostly came at it through Reddit, which I didn't really participate in those kinds of circles at all. Reddit and Discord. Um, like I didn't, I didn't even have a Discord when I was a teenager. So I know nothing about that. But what I do know is that it's a lot more like underground, like there's less, which, which maybe sounds weird because some of the most prominent like personalities in the trans movement are these like really kind of you know, audacious trans identified men who are like very, you know, kind of narcissistic. Um, but when you look at the majority of like young trans identified men, you find a lot of just like guys who they're just anonymous on discord uh, in these like closed groups, kind of having their own closed conversations, 
they don't even like a lot of the times they they will prefer to like buy their hormones online and take them in secret without ever telling anybody in their real life that they identify as trans or anything like that like there's a a much more kind of secretive nature whereas the ftms they'll be the ones to like you know come out to their parents and like go to war with their parents and tell the whole school and the whole school is parading them and they're you know going to graduation with their like pride flag cape and like they're the kind of there's a lot of ftms who kind of take that approach um but yeah there it is different but i would also say that maybe on the surface it looks different but i think there's a similar demographic and they behave differently because they're men and there are women, but it's, you know, with women and with men, it's kind of like this type of person who is more kind of like emotionally intense um, and kind of creative and kind of introverted, low self-confidence, um, a lot of the times coming from maybe not the most supportive family or there's some kind of dysfunction in the family not necessarily abuse or anything but i don't know divorce stuff like that um and you know autism also is like super super overrepresented in these teenagers um so i think it's a very similar type of kid for both men and women but obviously it does play out differently just because there are different behaviors yeah and I think it was, um, I don't know if it, I think the, the Bailey study or someone that kind of split uh, the, the male population who ends up, you know, trying to transition into Blanchard. two. Yeah, Blanchard as well, yeah, um, into two types because it was, um, yes, I, don't, I don't remember exactly the, the names, but essentially kind of effeminate, younger gay men who felt so effeminate that, you know, they did rather transition than try to navigate life as a man, which, uh, you know, they don't, they don't feel like. And the, the older, um, you know, people who in middle age discover that they, they were supposed to be women uh, all along, which are overrepresented in, in all sorts of uh, professional categories and, you know, in the military, uh, mm-hmm. executives. Programming all- and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's just, I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting split, I'd have to say. And, and I guess in um, uh, representing trans interests um, institutionally as well, like uh, most of the, the, the well-known people who actually, yeah, I don't know, are, are activists. Yeah, it's the AGPs, which is autogynephilia. So yeah, basically Blanchard is this researcher and he worked with a bunch of transsexuals, mostly males, because before about 10 years ago, all the transsexuals were males. Now it's completely flipped and it's like 70% females. But um, yeah, he worked with these men and he categorized them into homosexual, transsexual, which like you said, that's like the kind of effeminate gay man. Um, and those are always gay. Like there's not like a straight homosexual, transsexual, obviously. Um, And then all of the heterosexual men were classified into autogynophiles, which is basically, some people call it a fetish, but Blanchard really describes it as a paraphilia, which is distinct from a fetish because a paraphilia, it almost functions like a sexuality. Like there's there's very little um, 
sexual satisfaction that can be gained by these men from anything that deviates from this particular fantasy. So they're completely focused on this idea of, of becoming a woman and their entire sexual gratification and even like their romantic interests, like they cannot experience sexuality or romance outside of this context of being a woman. Um, so these are like very specific categories. And I definitely, you know, I can see that they applied before this recent boom of young people identifying as trans. But now I think that even among men, there is a third group of these young men who they're socially isolated. They're oftentimes, you know, emotionally troubled, very, very oftentimes autistic. So they take things very literally um, and they have black and white thinking. And they're actually coming to believe that they're trans through a very similar mechanism that I did, where it's like they're getting involved in these online communities. They're not having access to any kind of dissenting information. The trans communities online are pretty authoritarian in the ways that they um, just control information, control thought, control emotion. Um, and these young men are you know, basically following a very similar trajectory to what I did, even though maybe on the surface, it, it does look different. So Blanchard's typology does apply to many, but I just caution against trying to apply that to all of this new cohort, because we really don't understand anything about this new cohort. Yeah, I mean, the, the online component uh, and the forming of these parasocial re uh, relationships with, with other people in these groups seems to be huge. Um, I mean, I guess there's also the kind of the component of escaping the reality of, of your family. Like you said, you know, people from troubled backgrounds, um, in a, in a way, do you think it's, um, if, if in your case, do you think you could have found a community in real life or were the people around you already kind of absorbed into their own versions of, you know, parasocial relationships online? Um, you know, was, was it like essentially just an escape for you or was it really hard to, at this point, actually, you know, go out and, and meet people or whatever, whatever one does? Yeah. So at the time, like when I was a teenager, I did have a small friend group at school. Um, but like I was gravitating towards people who were similar to me in temperament and in interests. And it's just like, I think it's becoming more and more so with every year, but even at the time, like when I was a teenager in 2013, 2014, it's like any girl who was kind of like more introverted, more kind of like, you know, less interested in, in like the social goings ons of the real life and more interested in like my favorite celebrity or my favorite book or my favorite TV show. Like those are the kinds of girls who all like gravitate towards Tumblr. And so the few real life friends that I did have, we were all using Tumblr and our friendships were mediated through Tumblr and like chatting on Skype and stuff. So it was very like different from the kinds of friend groups that I, I observed in my other peers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's the only people you can relate to are the people that you can relate to online as well. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it's kind of leading me to believe that, you know, like at, at this point I see this already with, you know, even older people, like just, uh, um, you know, older people with Facebook, <laughs> just around, you know, my mom and, and, and kind of her circle and everyone's just absorbed by these things. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. It's, it's, and it's also kind of, you know, hard to coordinate because, um, you know, you can't be the only person that's just, you know, outside, uh, you know, it's, it's you can get creepy just by acting like, you know, everyone used to act 10 years ago. You're a bit, a bit strange. What does she want? Why isn't she on her phone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. It even feels weird. Like I, I kind of like try to be mindful of myself and like, not, you know, if I, if I have five minutes when I'm waiting on my coffee order to be ready, like I try to maybe like, you know, not just instantly pull out my phone and start scrolling. And it does feel kind of weird because like everyone else is doing that. And I'm just kind of like standing there and then I'm like, am I awkward? Are my hands awkward? Am I standing awkward? Like there's this kind of feeling of awkwardness that I imagine was not a hundred percent normal before the phones, but I don't know because I grew up with the phones. Yeah, that's so interesting because uh, I mean I'm kind of about half a generation. No, are you are you what is considered a Zoomer? I'm like a very early Zoomer. I'm 23, um, so I definitely I started using the internet mm, maybe like I was like 11 when I started kind of more seriously using it, and then. I fully got absorbed into it when I was 13. Um, so yeah, I think like there's a lot I have in common with the the younger Zoomers. Like I feel like I have more in common with the younger Zoomers who are currently in high school than I do with someone who's four years older than me. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I, I kind of got on the internet and got very online when I was about 20, 21. I had this, this whole kind of teenage life where I would just, you know, have Backstreet Boys posters in my room and would read magazines and it was very much meat space on 100%. You know, I had like an email address and some pen pal from Germany used to send me like these rambling letters in German that I used to just decipher. That was about as much as I did on, on the internet. And it was kind of like this novelty and also very boring because there's nothing to do on the internet. Uh, but then, yeah, I was pretty much an adult when I, when I figured it out, but still, still now, I mean, what is it? 10, 10 years and a, and a little <laughs> later, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm completely absorbed by it as well. I, I wonder what the, um, I wonder what it does to you to be, to be honest so early. I mean, not just, you know, obviously, you know, you've gone through an ordeal because of it, but just in general, just the, the format, even if you're not essentially absorbed by these, uh, by these kind of demons. Uh, yeah. What, what does it do? I mean, I, I think it, it has a lot to do. I mean, I think a lot of the kind of like psychological problems that we can see in my age group and younger, like people are rightfully, you know, pointing to the content found on the internet. But I also think there's a problem when you're developing and you're not using your body and you're just kind of like sitting on these devices and like pouring your brain and your attention into the device, but you're not like growing up really understanding and moving in your body. And I think that was a huge problem for me because even before I started using the internet as much, I was always like watching TV and stuff. Like my parents like did not really regulate that for me. And so I would just kind of socially isolate and watch TV or even like read or whatever, but I never really used my body. Like I was never pushed to just do anything really physical or like go outside all that much. And I think that that when you grow up like that, there's kind of like your body when you do use it feels extremely alien and foreign. Mm -hmm. And even like 
relationships in real life where it's like, you know, when you're actually sitting with another person and your neurons are firing off, like there's so much going on in your body as a response to like social situations that I think can even feel uncomfortable. Not so much because the person is necessarily socially anxious specifically, but just because they're so disconnected from their body and their, their true feelings when it's, you know, enmeshed in the real world, as opposed to just like inside the phone. Um, so I think that that's a huge source of, you know, why so many young people are feeling so uncomfortable with their bodies and, and like why they're choosing to f- obsess over their bodies and change their bodies and also just psychological issues in general. I think we have a, a crisis of people who like they literally don't know what the purpose of their body is. Like they have no, their body has no relevance to them in their daily life. And it creates confusion and meaninglessness and just a feeling like you're an alien. So I think that's a a big problem with development with the devices. Yeah. And there's also kind of this, this distance to other people, like not even just a disembodiment, it's just the, the, the lack of practice to, you know, just negotiate social situations because there are, there's a lot of friction, especially with people who are not part of your subreddit or, you know, people who are just there to affirm each other and just, you know, big each other up. So it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty tough. Like I, even I felt it, you know, after lockdown, you know, just being, just going out and talking to people and being social, it's, it's, you know, you feel rusty and I didn't, you know, I definitely wasn't that extreme to, you know, I still socialize, but not just not as much. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, just uh, it's it's a bit it's a bit scary. Um, I feel uh, another thing that you mentioned when I was reading your Substack was kind of the effect of, um, of pornography as well, because that's kind of a lingering thing on the Internet. I mean, some would say that the Internet was was built on pornography and essentially for pornography because it's, it's just a such a such a behemoth uh, of the format. Um, I mean, what did that have any effect in in your case? And, you know, if you could speak about that. So personally, I didn't have much of a direct relationship with pornography. I always found it kind of intimidating and gross. I never really struggled with like, you know, consuming too much of it or anything. Um, I've maybe watched porn like three or four times in my whole life, but even still like the culture of pornography and like pornography being not only just normalized, but being something that's supposed to be like a good, it's something like that everyone does. It's pleasurable. It's awesome. It's liberating. It teaches you about sexuality and all this kind of stuff. Like those attitudes were very pernicious in the communities that I was in. And it kind of resulted in this weird dynamic where you have these kids who are like, teenagers and they're complete virgins like like beyond just sex like they've never dated anyone they've never been on a date they've never held anybody's hand they've never flirted with anybody but they have watched a fuck ton of porn and they know about every bizarre crazy kink out there and so you have these like extremely inexperienced kids who have this totally wild perception of sexuality and relationships from maybe watching porn themselves, but also just from the way that the porn just seeps into the culture and and affects the way that people see sexuality and relationships. And I think that that for both men and women kind of scares these 
kids away from like growing up and forming relationships and being the adult version of themselves because you kind of like I just remember having this feeling of like like subconsciously it wasn't really a conscious thing but it's like oh if I'm a woman then I have to grow up and like be okay with all of this insane shit that people are saying is is normal and good um and even you know beyond that there's kind of like the the sex work is work culture um which was very common too and like OnlyFans didn't exist back then, but there was like camming and, and all this kind of stuff. And um, that was very encouraged. It was seen as a very good thing. And, and just, I remember feeling really intimidated by this and really grossed out by it. And I, I would get really upset when people would try to talk to me about sexual stuff and I would just melt down and, and stuff. Um, so yeah, I just remember feeling like, oh, so if I'm a woman, then I'm going to have to be okay with this, but I'm not okay with it. It really freaks me out. So that must mean that I'm not a woman because all the other women are okay with it. Yeah, that's, that's really disturbing. So I, I mean, I yeah. remember growing up, uh, you know, in Eastern Europe and even I remember seeing there was this video of Jenna Jameson and hell. And I just, it's burnt into my retina. And I saw that when I was about, I think, 13 years old. And someone, I think, literally had it on cassette or something. And they were like, okay, this is, this is, you know, women, this is what's on the menu. And to be honest, it was like hardcore porn. And I was like, okay, this is absolutely nuts. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And like, I remember like the times that I did actually watch porn because I would get curious and stuff. And I would just like everything I found, like, I was like, like, Obviously, I'd never had like any kind of sexual interaction before, but I could just tell that it didn't feel good for like the woman in the video. Or I guess I imagined like if this was happening to me, I feel like it would not feel good at all. And then so I was like, is that what sex is? I'm so scared. Um, And I would, you know, I identify it as asexual and aromantic. Like I was just completely petrified of adult relations. Um, And I think that that has a lot to do with why some young people become trans. And then on the other hand, you have kids who actually become obsessed with it. Like they become obsessed with porn, they become obsessed with sex. And it's like, it's almost, I think there's a weird dynamic between like viewing the content and it's like completely addictive. It's completely overpowering you for natural reasons. Like when you're Like, for example, a young boy and your testosterone is shooting through the roof, like seeing pornography, that's going to be like extremely compelling. But then I think there's there's guilt and there's shame and there's confusion and there's fear. And I think that causes a level of dissociation where it's it's almost easier to like invent a new like identity for yourself and then participate in that sexual obsession that you've developed because of the pornography than it is to like stop using the pornography and and like develop a healthier like sexuality because you're young and you have no idea how to do that. And like, you've been so deeply affected by the pornography. Um, I don't know if that made any sense, but I think that there's like a weird dynamic going on there where it's like, I think a lot of these young boys, like they just like understandably get thought of as perverts, but I think there's, there's just something going on where it's not like their fault. It's like they found this pornography when they were nine years old or 10 years old or just beginning to experience puberty or even before that. And it's just totally like hijacks your development. It's crazy, or at least I think it does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, I don't know, 
I'm just really scared of of the you know this 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 brave new world because I you know I have a a very very young boy and you know I don't even want to know what types of just <laughs> demonic machines will you know will exist when he's of age which is could mean anything in the in the near future because I guess you know then the new frontier of of liberating the individual probably have to at one point attack the you know the age of consent and the age of you know exposing kids to this stuff because um you know kind of the the liberal perspective on this is that um any sexual dysfunction is is a lack of education you know someone is misinformed about about sex they just need more information and obviously the, the better if you get educated earlier you get educated the the more the, the better you will be at sex you know there's kind of the skills view of sex you know there's you know completely devoid of any sort of kind of transcendent or sacred dimension or you know just even just the fear of god knowing that this is such an important and scary feel that you know that it can mess you up really easily uh but yeah you know people don't really have that on uh on the, on the liberal side they don't feel that yeah or they straight up believe that sexual dysfunctions aren't dysfunctions they're just like normal and should be normalized and that there's there's no difference between teaching a 15 year old about condoms and teaching a 15 year old about like bdsm to put it lightly yeah yeah especially because now you know bdsm and all of this stuff like you said is kind of hyper normalized and it's slowly trickling into you know bdsm is pretty much vanilla at this point um no, there's not, it's not anything very spicy. Uh, uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's very strange because it feels to me that, um, you know, the, the, the gay cultural symbols that I was reading about, you know, in books about I don't know, the 1970s and 1980s, which were completely outlandish things back then, have kind of trickled into main, not essentially, had trickled through Tumblr and through these, you know, portals into mainstream culture now. And it feels like, you know, the, the gay culture of kind of gay liberation is now the sexual culture that is nice and good and recommended for everyone. Like, you know, even like the, the tolerance of sex work, you know, polyamory, um, you know, partner swapping, essentially all, and all sorts of, you know, practices like rimming and things like that. Like that, that just wasn't a thing, you know, it's just not a heterosexual thing to do. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? It just feels like it's all kind of been hijacked under the you know, gay umbrella? Uh, totally. I mean, I, hmm, it's kind of hard for me to know because obviously I'm, I'm young enough that I didn't really experience like that gay liberation movement, you know, before it became, before, you know, the, the discourse became what it is now. So I can't really compare it, but I do like, you know, I, I know that it's been, completely normalized to the point where like growing up, I had all these ideas about sex and, you know, rimming being something completely normal and the most insane kinks that you can even imagine being completely normal and encouraged to like explore them mentally and stuff and, and just not even having any, you know, qualms about these things. And then when I actually did, you know, grow up and start dating like a real man in the real world, I've had to completely unpack this stuff. Like I, it was shocking to me how much, like how many just crazy assumptions I had that were based on this like weird sexual liberation ideology that I 
consumed when I was 13 years old and how it, it's just not at all conducive with what is actually, you know, healthy for me and, and my relationship. Unfortunately, like my boyfriend is such a good guy. Like he, he's completely like been there for me, but yeah, it's just, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. I mean, what after you know after all this uh, you know the the journey you've been on? What do you think about the um, kind of this idea that to be fulfilled as a person, you need to find and maybe create kind of an, an authentic self. So that is the purpose of life. You know, once you've once you've reached that stage, you're set. Uh, because I feel like that's kind of the assumption around you know that, that you have behind a lot of these communities and a lot of these identities is that you know once you find that one label or thing or you create it yourself or you know maybe it's a kind of a potpourri of of different labels then that will be the end point and you will find uh, I know peace um yeah I think it's it's very inverted like there's kind of the belief that you have to discover the identity within you and then you take steps to enact that identity Whereas I think it's it's more like the identity is the product of your experiences and the things that you do. And it's especially dysfunctional when it comes to adolescence, because when you actually like look at, you know, the research of, you know, adolescent and childhood development, it's like everyone knows that identity is the product of adolescence. Like I was saying earlier, like adolescents are in this period where it's like the brain is just like sucking everything up, trying to make sense of it and trying to form an identity. And that's why teenagers experiment with so many different things. That's why they feel so passionately about so many different things because they're just, they're, they're taking all this information from the world and like, you know, analyzing it and then tossing it out and then analyzing it and then incorporating it. Like they're forming that identity. It's just ridiculous to say that like a teenager has this identity deep inside them and they can find it and then they have to build their body to fit the identity. Like that's just, I'm not sure where that idea came from, but it's, it's just extremely backwards from what we know both through research, but also just common sense and thousands of years of observation of how people work. Yeah, I think it's, you know, based on this idea that uh, there is kind of a, a rational agent at the core of people and, you know, essentially choice is how we, uh, how we exist as, you know, a free, free agents of the liberal order. And, you know, if, if you kind of question this idea of autonomy and choice, then, you know, maybe, maybe we aren't, we aren't actually that, you know, ideal, ideal uh, creature. Um Anyway, uh, I also wanted to ask you, now that you've, you know, you've done a lot of work with, uh, you know, with, with detransition, you're, you know, you work with, uh, I think, is it uh, Gen, Genpact? Genspect. Genspect, exactly. Um, you know, is, what's, what's your trajectory from now on? Are you going to continue writing? Uh, are you going to move away from kind of the, the detransitioning beat or are you going to lean, lean into it? Um, I guess we'll see. Right now I'm kind of, taking a little bit of a step back just because I really enjoy what I do um, because I think it's the right thing to do, but also the attention, like I'm not a person who really actually likes attention all that much. So I'm kind of trying to take a step back, but just knowing myself, I don't think that until something really drastically changes, I don't think I'll be able to let go of this because man, like every time I think like, you know, am I done with this or am I getting bored of this or something like that? I, 
I just read another person's experience and, and it's just like, it just breaks my heart what some people are going through. Like, it's insane to, to be friends with so many people who like, you know, had their breasts cut off when they were 15 years old or had their testicles removed when they were 18 years old. Like that's, and, and like actually being there to witness how they're processing it and witness how deeply it's affected them. Um, and then also, you know, becoming so familiar with, you know, the lore of the trans movement and how, how much just like lying and dishonesty and, you know, profit seeking narcissistic <laughs> shenanigans goes on. It's like, I just don't know if I can walk away from it. Like, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, once you look into the abyss, you're kind of just stuck there. Um, and there's no turning away from the abyss. So yeah, I'm, I'm still very, very motivated by it. But like I said, it's not something I do for my own personal, like to share my story or whatever, to, to heal myself. It's something that I'm really doing because it just feels like a moral imperative to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you're really well placed to, you know, if, if you consider this in future to write a book about this, you know, you're extremely well spoken. You had a very representative experience for so many people. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's important. So. Maybe it's in the works. You're nodding, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it's something I'm uh, I'm playing around with right now. I'm just focusing on the Substack because it took me a long time to actually get the guts to make the Substack. Because um, talking is so easy for me, but writing is it just feels so much more like I don't know intimate somehow. But um, yeah. So right now I'm just kind of focusing on actually developing my my written voice. But I think in the future, that is something that I would like to do. Nice. Excellent. Well, I, I, I hope you do. Um, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you a question the show. Everyone gets this question. Um, do you have a subversive thinker, you know, living or dead, anyone who's been influential in your life uh, or that you could recommend that, you know, maybe people haven't heard of, maybe, maybe they have, uh, but just someone that you think is underrated and people should be uh, reading more of or, or checking out? Hmm. I know you asked this question and I was kind of panicking about it, not knowing <laughs> who to say, but first thing that's coming to mind is actually one of my friends. He's on Twitter. He has a sub stack. He's a detransition man. And he just, you know, I don't agree with everything he says, but I think he's a really intelligent person. Uh, his at is American dog, 1998. Um, and he has a Substack link linked in his bio. Um, yeah, so that's what I'll say. Oh, good, perfect. I like I like that. It's uh it's very actionable because sometimes people recommend like you know super arcane books that are out of print for a thousand years and like literally no one can find them. But now you can just go on Twitter and and, and inspect the uh, the the young man's or I guess young man now. Um, yeah. <laughs> Twitter. Um, thank you so much, Helena. This was lovely. I'm happy we got to it. I'm sorry about the audio implosion. I still don't oh, know what okay. happened, but it's all good. Um, so thank you for, so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great talk. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. 
Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. 